A few years ago, I and some friends went to central Burma to visit the monastery of one of the grandfathers of this tradition of practice, whose name is Mahasi Sayadaw. And Mahasi Sayadaw was a monk in the middle of the last century who was a scholar of renown in Burma and he was a practitioner, a meditator also, who uh, learned and, uh, learned how to practice and uh, in undertaking his own practice developed a way of practicing that was very effective and uh, useful for even lay people, householders like ourselves, not just for monks and nuns who lived the whole lifetime in the monastery. So he uh, opened a monast- uh, meditation center, really, in Rangoon in 1949. And uh, over the years, uh, many Westerners or teachers like Manindra and Sairu Pandita and many Westerners have practiced there. And it's had a pretty profound, uh, significant effect on the whole way that we practice uh, mindfulness and insight meditation here in the West. So we had gone to this um, remote village uh, to see where he lived as a monk before he uh, opened the meditation center in Rangoon. And we found there um, on the wall of his cottage where he uh, lived uh, his admonition, what was called an admonition, uh, of, which is kind of a succinct um, overview of Buddhist teachings uh, and practices. And you know when we look online or you go into a bookstore and you look at, uh, you look for spiritual books or meditation books or even just Buddhist books, there's just such a proliferation of uh, titles and topics that you hardly know where to begin. But this admonition that uh, Mahasi Sayadaw wrote is very succinct and contains all the elements of what you actually need to know and do to gain the benefit of what the Buddha taught. So I want to uh, read this uh, short piece. Uh, I've changed the word admonition, which feels a little bit like being admonished, to uh, encouraging counsel because I find it really encouraging and it's advisory and it's encouraging and supportive of our practice that we are undertaking here. So he writes, Do good deeds, avoid causing harm, and purify your mind. These are the teachings of all the Buddhas. It is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, one's wealth, and humanity. And living in harmony, too, is a real refuge, in that it makes one pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. Let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping. Love solitude. Be willing to learn and seek good friends. These are the six factors contributing to good dhammas. Continuous mindful awareness leads to insightful understanding of the causal relationship between mind and body, their impermanence, unreliability, and insubstantiality, and such wisdom leads to lasting peace. This meditation center should be a quiet place where we strengthen our faith practice generosity, live in harmony, calm and liberate the mind. It's pretty pithy, but it contains all of the uh, practices that we really need to uh, undertake to fulfill the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path. 
and to awaken and free ourselves from suffering. So we start by saying, do good deeds, avoid causing harm, and purify your mind. These are the teachings of the Buddhas, of all Buddhas. You know, we live in the time of Gautama Buddha, who lived 2,500 years ago. And while that seems like a long time ago, and it is, it's amazing that the, the, the teaching of someone from that time is, so, is still so uh, powerfully uh, uh, practiced and, and alive, really, in, in, the, in the world today. But there's our, our Buddha, uh, the Gautama Buddha from 2,500 years ago, was just uh, the 29th in, a, in a, a, lo- a, a long lineage of Buddhas. And it is said that all the Buddhas teach the same thing. So when he says to do good, you know, the Buddha, the Buddha was really into lists. You know, he was, he was a real list maker. So, you know, you can't just say do good and avoid harm, avoid causing harm. It's, uh, there's ten good things to do, there's ten things to avoid, and there's three ways of purifying the mind. But anyway, so that we can, we can, you know, if you, if you just use your uh, kind of good human sense of what are the, the good things to do, what are the good behaviors or, or qualities to develop, you know, generosity, <coughs> be generous to the poor, live an ethically moral life and to develop the mind means of course to <coughs> learn to calm the mind down through tranquility practices but also to understand the mind through insight practices so these are three of the ten wholesome deeds but also to pay respect to those who you revere because those who re- you, you revere have qualities of heart and mind that are guiding or valuable or instructive to you, and to pay respect to them is important. And to serve others, to, to live in the world in a way that we are a benefactor rather than a, bo- rather than a bother uh, to others. And there's many ways to serve, of course. Uh, even here in this retreat, just doing your share to uh, ring the bells and do the dishes and sweep the floor and whatever it is you do supports, serves the rest of us for being here. And then it's uh, there's a couple of um, a couple that are a little challenging to understand, but it says to share share your merit with others and to rejoice in others' merit. The merit that the Buddha is referring to is as we develop the goodness within our own heart, we develop our own qualities of kindness and understanding and uh, patience, truthfulness and generosity. We develop uh, goodness, a momentum of goodness in our life that, of course, touches everyone that we um, share life with, but it's also possible in the Buddha's understanding of the nature of mind and the activity of mind to share that goodness with others just with your own with your own mind to just say may all may other beings may all others share in the merit the goodness that is present in my own heart and mind and rather than just kind of keeping it for yourself as if that was of any benefit um but to be able to share the merit with others is beneficial to them, even though it's hard for us to understand how um, the quality of our mind can immediately and directly impact the quality of others' minds. But I'm sure you've heard of and read of some of these um, experiments they've done with uh, people in the Boston area, for example, having loving thoughts about people that they don't know in the hospitals in San Francisco. And the people in San Francisco heal quicker because of those prayers. I mean, it sounds sounds impossible. And yet, there's been 
several uh, experiments and confirmed again and again and again that this is so. And even though our minds can't really understand how that happens, you know, science has its way of testing. And uh, so too the Buddha said, if you share the goodness in your heart with others, they will benefit. So this is kind of inscrutable, but if we take the Buddhist teachings as something to hear, listen, aspire to, practice, maybe we'll find out for ourselves. And then the remaining uh, three wholesome actions to do uh, involve the Dharma. Even listening to the Dharma is a wholesome thing to do because it uh, inspires, it educates, it informs you, it uh, encourages, uh, and it also straightens your views or it helps to uh, bring a correct understanding to your mind. And when I say correct understanding or to straighten your view, I mean to to hear the view, the way of understanding that the Buddha had, that this is what leads to the end of suffering. We say that's right view. The mistaken beliefs that we carry and the assumptions that we believe, we call them wrong views if they lead to more suffering. It's not right and wrong in any grand metaphysical sense. It's just do they lead to suffering, do they lead to the end of suffering? So to just hear right views as most post-dharma is in so many ways uh, helps to straighten our views and this is an important thing to do so that we can practice uh, awareness with confidence uh, knowing that we're headed in the right direction or at least aligning our aspiration with the teachings of the Buddha and then to teach the Dharma and I'm not the only one that's teaching the Dharma here this week uh, we all share our understanding through our behavior, through the way that we uh, treat each other, even in the silence and the movement around the center. This is the way of sharing or expressing your understanding of the Dharma with patience and truthfulness and kindness and consideration, respect. So these are the wholesome actions that the Buddha teaches us to do. To avoid causing harm means to uh, act compassionately so as not to harm others. And it really is uh, what we're doing here with the precepts. To not harm by killing or hurting other beings. Uh, to not uh, steal or take what is not offered or misabusing or abusing or misusing uh, the resources. And then, to, of course, to act out uh, sexual energy in a way that harms others, yourself. And then there are four ways of speaking that, are, that can um, cause harm. So to refrain from uh, telling uh, untruths, to speak so as to slander, to speak harshly. And here's an interesting one, to speak about what is meaningless and frivolous. Now, I've, in, in the past I've spoken about the conditions for right speech. We're not speaking here so much, but we will as soon as the retreat's over. And in this um, frivolous or meaningless speech, you know, we have to consider uh, what that is. And the Buddha, the Buddha gave a list of all the topics that are meaningless and frivolous and not, not particularly useful for, now this is for monks and nuns, but for anyone who's practicing, as we are even, these are the topics, uh, you know, politicians, wars, the economy, uh, members of the opposite uh, gender, or, or members of any gender that you find attractive, um, gossip, uh, speaking about food, Adornments, clothing, uh, entertainments. I mean, it's all of Hollywood, it's all of Washington, D.C., it's all of Wall Street, and everything is in the newspaper. So it's like, 
But you know, the Buddha also spoke about. I mean, just just you know, just to give you the other side of the coin, he also spoke about what are uplifting and uh, topics to to speak about when you're on the path of awakening. You know, and and you might consider some of these topics. You know, the next time you're you're going out for dinner with friends, you know, speaking about renunciation. <laughs> Contentment with little, uh, strenuous efforts in practicing simplicity and awareness, uh, talking about mindfulness and tranquility, seclusion of mind from the torments and distractions, and living simply. You know, I mean, I would like to go out to dinner, I've got a topic. <laughs> but, hey, you know what? Did you ever try it? <laughs> You never know, you might find something useful, something interesting to talk about. <laughs> anyway, then the other uh, three unwholesome uh, or, or uncompassionate um, to yourself to avoid is to covetousness of others' belongings, ill will, any forms of aversion, and then wrong views, uh, holding views that are lead to some form of suffering. And then to purify the mind is what we're doing here, uh, developing mindfulness to, to temporarily, momentarily purify the mind of the obsessive defilements, the obsessing attachment, aversion, confusion, delusion, doubt, fear, self-pity, frustration, disappointment that you might have seen today. And as we become aware of it, or any of these mental states, we temporarily kind of unplug from them. We're not acting them out. We're not quite so obsessed. We get a little space around them. And then to uh, purify our understanding by developing insight, insight, knowledge about the nature of these states of mind. And then the more we uh, understand uh, the nature of attachment, aversion, fear, depression, jealousy, the more we understand, the less likely we are to get caught, get entangled, uh, get uh, caught up in uh, acting them out or obsessing even. He then goes on to say that it is generosity that one can rely on for one's happiness, one's wealth, and humanity. And you know, it's a little counterintuitive how being generous can contribute to one's wealth and happiness. But I'm sure all of you have had the opportunity to to spontaneously feel the urge to be generous to help, whether it's offering <coughs> financial resources or offering your knowledge or offering your time, and it can be simply helping someone across the street. Uh, but it can be so much so much more than that too. And you know, when we when we come from a poverty mentality we think that we don't have enough and that we don't have enough certainly to offer to others but we all have knowledge we all have time we all have compassion and there's just an infinite need for any and all of this in uh, our neighborhoods The humanity part of generosity is, you know, when you when you see others in need, whatever whatever the need is, and you can uh, share with them, share your life with them in some ways. Whatever you offer, whether it's knowledge or time or material goods or whatever the need, what you're really offering with any act of generosity is you're offering. Uh, acknowledgement that this person is that you recognize this person that you see this person whatever their condition you see them you value them as a human being you can respect them just as a human being and you, you and by that gesture you give them love you love them and that's what is given or offered with every act of generosity, is love. So some of you know that um, well, 
12 years ago now, uh, one of my students asked me if I knew any um, NGO or uh, charitable organization that uh, supported education in third world countries, and I didn't at the time. But I said I'd keep my mind open about it. And, uh, gee, it wasn't but about a week later that one of the monks that taught me the meditation when I was in Burma got in touch with me, and he asked me if I could help him uh, build a school in his native village. So here's one student that wants to support education in third world countries, and here's my monastic teacher saying, would I help him find a way to help him build a school? And I thought, hmm, I wonder if they're talking about the same thing got them in touch with each other, and, and yes, it seemed like that would be possible. So that was the beginning of um, annual trips to Burma to build schools. And over the years, uh, now we've, there's been other uh, donors come forward, and uh, now we've been doing this for 12 years. And we've built about a hundred schools, and we've also built a couple of huge clinics. I mean, uh, nunneries for nuns, about uh, hundred nuns each, and because nunneries are the uh, orphanages for girls in Burma. And then we started building clinics because some some students who are in the medical field wanted to offer medical clinics in in Burma, so. We built a half dozen of them. Now, there's an interesting thing. When you come to a village in Burma, we go to mostly just uh, subsistence farming villages that are way out there. They don't have electricity. They don't have running water. They have thatch roof, bamboo sheds that they live in for the most part. Some of them are nice, but you know, they're, they're pretty pretty um, uh, low on the economic level of measurement. But when we come to this uh, village, they come to these villages, the whole village shows up. Everybody in the village wants to, to meet us because we're going to look and see if this is a place where we want to build a school. Of course, they want to convince us that it's a place where they want us to build a school. And they are so enthusiastic about uh, the possibility of getting a school that they will do everything they can to make it possible. You know, they don't have money. But they have labor, they can get the rocks, they can get the sand, they can get the bricks, they can get all the materials that we buy. They'll get them there. Because some of the places we go don't have roads to the place. It's only ox trails. And in some of the villages that we've gone, it's like we're the first foreigners that ever... I mean, these are not tourist destinations at all. We're the first foreigners that, that have ever been there. And in some places, we're the first vehicle that ever drove to the village. So these are these are really out there but everyone from the youngest kid to the oldest um, you know uh, that, that can that can get out to see us will come to that just to um, you know express their appreciation their gratitude and to see them and to, to know that how valuable it is to have a school uh, the educational system is it's not that it's not that good, but you know when you don't have a school, there's little little inclination for the kids to gather together even. And a lot of places we go, the school is a tree. You know, they meet under a tree if it's not raining. And um, so it's a real gesture of humanity, and you really you really connect with your own uh, humanity and value of education in in going to places like this and offering time, knowledge, money in this case. The Buddha said, if beings knew as I know the benefit of sharing, they wouldn't let any opportunity go by if there was someone to receive a gift. What did he know? What did he know about sharing or offering, being generous? He wouldn't let any opportunity go by. It's something to think about. Living in harmony, too, is a real refuge, Mahasi says, Sayadaw says, 
in that it makes one pleasing, delightful, and free from destructive states of mind. This living in harmony is living in harmony within yourself and living in harmony with others by practicing, again, the precepts as we uh, mentioned it, as I mentioned. You know, we have, to, we have to look at what is the benefit to us by living uh, with that kind of consideration, not to harm killing, stealing, sexual activity that harms, uh, use of intoxicants, things like that. And you only have to look at the news to see how much the world is not keeping precepts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, just not. And, you know, the Buddha, the Buddha said there are these two qualities of mind. They're called, in, in the Pali language, they're called hiri, and Otapa, and they are the called the guardians of the world because they protect the world from just falling into depravity, and their uh, moral uh, consciousness, conscientiousness, and uh, moral moral shame—not the shame of humiliation, but the moral shame. It's having a sense of your own interior standards of what's right and wrong in your relationships with others. And it also includes the having a sense of what the community standards are. And the community standards are those of your spiritual community. Whoever your spiritual community is, what is their standards of right and wrong? This is not just a moralistic, you know, judgmental, um, you know, put down of people who are different in any way. It's not that at all. But we know, we know in our own hearts when something is uh, harmful to others, harmful to our own, uh, harmful to our own, uh, I want to say, stability or harmony within our own mind, within our own heart. And it's said that those who uh, can can find this harmony within their own heart, that they have, they can, they can move about with confidence in any group of people, because they feel, you know, that they're in touch with themselves. They're, they have a an integrity, in alignment with themselves, and so they're not, they're not vulnerable to being shamed or blamed or guilt tripped or punished, and so they're able to live in the world with kind of confidence and other people like them you know even dogs I mean, if you, you just give a dog a bone you've got a friend for life you know it's it's that way of um, you know bringing joy to for the joy for, of your mind and sharing it with others in the way that you uh, treat them now we may know Yes, this is the skillful thing to do, this is the wise thing to do, this is the kind and compassionate thing to do, and it's not always easy. But that doesn't mean it's wrong, it just means that, well, we have room for improvement. And we all, we all, have, we all have seen that too. Now, Mahasasayadar says, there are these six factors contributing to good dhammas. And this is where we start getting into more of the uh, practice of renunciation and the kind of practices that we're doing here on the retreat. What I've been talking about so far are the practices of living in the world in community with others, doing good, avoiding, avoid causing harm, practice generosity. Now he says, let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say in a few hours that you spend sleeping. I don't know what he means by few, but he didn't live in the 20th, 21st century West. So, but we can see that, you know, even if we, it's not, not that if we had a few things to attend to, but if we had a fewer, a few fewer things to attend to, it would be so much simpler. We would be just a little bit calmer. We wouldn't be quite so strung out, not quite so, not having to multitask all the time. And we, we know that as soon as we make some effort to just simplify our life, not to the point of, you know, 
doing without, but just to simplify our life, is a powerful has a powerful effect on how we feel uh, inwardly uh, about ourselves. <coughs> and then a few words that you say. Well, I might say a few words that you text, <laughs> text, say, write, read. Uh, we live in the world of concepts, you know, the world of words, um, probably much more than we live in the world of our senses. And uh, there's costs to all that. And we really can feel quite estranged from ourselves. We can feel quite disconnected from ourselves. Um, and we know that words can really spin us out. You know, whether it's just reading the news or a caustic comment from anyone can really pierce our heart in a way that is not easy to live with, to acknowledge. So this renunciation of busyness and renunciation of speech, uh, or just the quantity of speech, leads to more collected sense, more collectedness of mind, a quieter mind, a little calmer uh, body, and this letting go of busyness, letting go of babbleness, uh, really um, can bring us into a right relationship with our own life, let alone with the lives of others. And those who speak carefully, those who speak truthfully, those who are kind and gentle in their speech, speaking what's beneficial in a timely manner, they become peacemakers, they become uh, trusted, they become um, respected, reliable. If we knew, and we do know, but sometimes we don't acknowledge it enough maybe, the fabric of our communal life is as fragile as the intention of every word that we speak. Because the communal life that we live at home or in our workplace or in our neighborhood is built on the care and the consideration, the trust that we have with those around us. And if we're careless in our speech, uh, others can take offense. We may not, well, sometimes we may mean harm, but even if we don't intend harm, the impact upon others may be harmful. And so, uh, being aware of speaking in a way that doesn't harm means not only watching, or observing, recognizing, being careful of your intention when you're about to speak, but also noticing the effect that your speaking has on others and when it causes harm, unintentionally, to either amend or at least learn from that. that there's more to pay attention to. When I was living in the monastery in, um, in Rangoon, I'd, I'd gone to practice with Sayadaw Pandita there. And Sayadaw Pandita was a very um, well-respected uh, monk in Burma. And <clears throat> he had invited uh, a number of young monks to Rangoon in the monastery to train, to learn English and to train in uh, basically becoming missionaries. Not that they are going to go out and try to proselytize and convert people to Buddhism, but there are large Buddhist or Burmese uh, communities in all the big major cities of the world and they all have a, there's always a Burmese cultural center. And they always uh, send a monk to to stay there. And so he was he was training them and these were the monks who were, you know, the the brightest and the the most uh, astute meditators and the ones who got first or second in the national exams. And so they were really just bright bright guys. And um, they had this little section of the monastery where they they lived and there were, you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 of them. Uh, training, and they, they helped run the meditation center, but they were also learning English and, and studying. And because I spoke English, they they liked trying to 
<laughs> trying to get, trying to talk with me. I like talking with them too. Uh, but you know, I was always curious about them. Like, who are you, and what are you doing here, and where'd you come from, and what's up? They would not say anything about each other. I couldn't get them to say. You know, they they room with, you know, they they room together and they know each other and. Some of them are exceptional chanters. Some of them are exceptional meditators, and you just you just hear about this, but they wouldn't say anything about each other. And I think they really understood that the fabric of their community, their communal life, is fragile. You know, and if you're just careless for a while and speaking about each other, you know, even with good intention, it can set off ripples and you know weaken the fabric of the community. So it was really instructive to me to see how uh, careful they were with their uh, speaking to each other and about each other when I was there. Mahasasada also says, let there be only a few hours that you spend sleeping. Now I mentioned that at the monastery where I went, you know, they, you know, you wake up at three and you sit and walk alternate hours till eleven o'clock at night, and they, were, they weren't kidding. You know, as Upandita said, you can sleep as much as you like between eleven and three. And uh, I don't think that that's you know necessarily what we need to need to do. But I think that what Mahasa Society is pointing to is that. Um, if we indulge in excessive sleep, then we can become lazy and the mind can become dull and we can kind of shirk our responsibilities, whatever they are. So I think, you know, what I like to encourage people to do is to really look at uh, how much they sleep, when they sleep, and not to, not to try to do without the sleep that you need, but to really find out for yourself, truly, how much sleep you need. And uh, I think a lot of us just assume that we need a certain amount of sleep, of course with whatever behaviors or uh, whatever workload, whatever social life we have, it it puts some demands on us. But uh, to get the sleep that you need supports stability of mind, but to get more than you need uh, supports indulgence and kind of mushiness of mind, if you will. So it's um, important to monitor and to know for ourselves because we've actually tried it. And that's why when, when you come on a retreat like this, I often encourage people to really be sensitive to whether you are wakeful or whether you're sleepy, really sleepy, as the day moves on and, uh, you know, we may, we may stop our group practice at 9.30, but you may not be tired yet. You know, you may not be just falling over dead tired. You may just be looking forward to the comfort of laying down, which is okay the first couple of days. But after that, it's, you know, because it's such a rare opportunity to even get to come to a retreat like this, and it's, you know, it's using your time and using your holiday time or and discretionary time, money, and whatnot. Um, to, to make best use of your time here. Uh, so that when, as the retreat goes on, you feel a little more energized and you have a little more energy, you might wake up before the wake-up bell, you might not feel tired at the end of our group sitting at 9.30, to extend your practice just a little bit, not to, nothing heroic, it's not like you're going to stay up all night, but even just to extend 15 minutes, 20 minutes, if you wake up before the wake-up bell, get up. Just get up and get on with the day. And you can always come to the hall and sit, or you can walk outside. The weather's been beautiful, you know, even early morning. It's really nice. So, be honest with yourself around the amount of sleep you need. I know the first few days of retreat you need a lot. Most of us live pretty overextended, busy lives, so... You can catch up, but in a few days, or in a couple of days, you'll see, you know, mind can have more energy.
So let there be a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping. He then goes on to say, love, solitude, be willing to learn, and seek good friends. These are the six factors contributing to good dhammas. When he says, love, solitude, and seek good friends, kind of sounds a little, kind of like they're going a little counterintuitive that they could be in the same direction. But actually, to love solitude means to, not to isolate yourself so much as to learn how to be comfortable alone. And that means alone without the phone, without the text, without the computer, without the news, without the... Because in the solitude of our own heart and mind is wisdom. There's wisdom there. And in the you know, entanglement with the world of activity and what's out there, it's easy to lose touch with, it's easy to lose sight of, it's easy to lose contact with that inherent natural wisdom that is available. And most of us have had that experience, whether you're alone in nature or you're alone at the beach or whatever, you're just alone and things become clearer sometimes. Just settling into your own heart. So, to love solitude is not to just endure loneliness or isolation, but it's learning how to be at ease with yourself without uh, encumbering the mind. Being at ease with the fullness of your mind, or being at ease with the emptiness of your mind. Either way. One time I was, after I left Burma, I was still a monk, and I went to uh, Thailand to for about a three-month period to practice while I was waiting for Upandita to come out of Burma, and I was going to travel with him. And so I went to, I had someone find me a monastery to go practice in uh, that was outside the city. So they took me to this monastery over near Cambodia, and it was just a small village, and it was a really small uh, monastery. It was about a hundred acres, but there was only two monks. And uh, they didn't speak any English, and I didn't speak any Thai. And I was there for three months. And uh, it was... It was a lot of solitude. <laughs> and the only time I saw them was in the morning between 6.30, when we got up and uh, uh, put on our robes to, to go out into the community to collect our alms. So we would go for an alms round of about an hour, an hour and a quarter, uh, through the village, and uh, people would offer us their meals in our bowls. We'd go back to the monastery, clean up the monastery a little bit, and then eat our meal. And we were done by 8 o'clock. From 6.30 to 8, I saw the other monks, and then I was back in the forest in my cottage and didn't see him until 6.30 the next morning. And all I had was geckos, jungle geckos. Man, are they loud. They're like, they're like, they're like a foot and a half long with a big tail. They're harmless, but boy, when they, when they start chattering, it can raise the hair on you. But, uh, that and snakes. Wow, okay, so one time I was, you know, we get to eat one meal a day. So, by eight o'clock in the morning, you're done eating for the day. And in this village, they grew a tapioca and they ate sticky rice. So we got big globs of sticky rice, uh, tapioca, and ground up meat with green flecks of something in it every day. That was, that was what we got. And no fresh vegetables. Occasionally we got a barbecued frog. But we won't go there. I didn't eat those ones. And uh, so you eat this heavy food. I mean, heavy food because it's all you're going to get today. And so it would be so much heaviness that, you know, if you try to sit with that belly full of tapioca and sticky rice, you just kind of fall asleep. So I would stand, uh, my, my cottage, my little hut, like a little tool shed really, was up on uh, poles, up on stilts about six feet high. And um, so I, that was to keep, keep you off the jungle floor. So I would stand in the shade of this uh, building so that I could digest my food without just falling asleep. So I'd stand in such a way that when the sun came up, I would still be in the shade, 
uh, of the building. And I, I'd stand for two or three hours just to let the food digest, right? I knew I would just collapse. But there were flies in the shade. And the monk's robes only come down to mid-calf. You know, so from mid-calf down to my feet, the flies were just, not, not biting flies, but just house flies, like house flies. So it was irritating. It was irritating. So I had this uh, tea towel, you know, a little uh, dishwipe, wiping towel that I held in my hand, and I'd be standing, standing, flick, flick, standing, standing, flick, flick, trying to flick off the flies, you know, standing, standing, flick, flick, standing, flick. So one, one day I was standing there, and um, I felt something on my foot, and, and I didn't go flick, flick, but I looked down, and there was a snake slithering across my foot. And I did not move mindfully, I moved quickly. <laughs> and, <laughs> I don't know, it was, it was a good-sized snake, you know, four feet or so. And it was, it was good size. And, you know, it really uh, just started like that. And it just took off like a bullet. And it went to the nearest tree and went up the tree. Snakes can climb trees. That meant the stilts that my cottage was on were useless. <laughs> I, was, I was alone in the jungle, but I didn't have my solitude. It was like, wow. Talk about really recognizing how much sleep you need. You know, when you're living in a jungle like that, you're really pretty, pretty alert even if you're sleeping. <laughs> so, anyway, to love solitude is to, yeah, to to give yourself the uh, opportunity to be alone, you know, and to get used to what it's like to be alone, to be comfortable being alone, uh, not out of avoidance or anything, but just learning, learning how to do that. If you're here on a retreat, if you're here on a retreat with uh, a friend or a partner or someone that you know. You might give yourself the opportunity to be alone, to know that at the end of the retreat we can connect, we can share all of our experience, but while we're in retreat, I'll let you have your space, you let me have my space. And it can be, it can be really powerful to work with that level of renunciation, that level of uh, offering uh, solitude to someone else, not needing, not needing to connect in any way but just to let them, let them have the space of solitude to work through their own, uh, whatever comes up in the mind, whatever comes up in the heart. And sometimes when we're here in a retreat like this, we can see that sometimes people are really into their stuff in a way that's really distressing. And sometimes people cry or you know, they're really having a difficult time, anxious or whatever. And we can see it. We can we can feel it, or we can see it. You know, for the most part, let them be. Let them be. Just just silently acknowledging them to yourself can be a great support, not to interfere with whatever it is they're going through. Of course, if if someone's in trouble, someone's choking or something like that, of course, do what you can. Do you know? This is no time to be you know, stupid. But a lot of times we're so quick to jump in and offer advice and consolation and soothing when what the person really needs may be to find their own way through the thicket of their pain, their, their difficulty. Then Mahasi says, be willing to learn. Actually the word was, be docile. Well, you know, I heard this word docile and I thought... Cows are docile. You know, they just kind of stand in the field and chew their cud. You know, and I thought, that's what docile means, right? But that's not what docile means, actually. I thought docile meant to be kind of a passive, habituated, just kind of accepting whatever comes, you know. But actually, to be docile means to be willing to learn, to be willing to be taught, actually. To be willing to be taught. And... Once I understood that, I thought, oh, that, that's, that's an interesting quality. 
to to recognize it's needed in Dharma practice because you know so we gotta you know we've lived you know we we're educated we've lived our life we've made something of our life whatever it is we've done and uh, who are you to tell me anything you know but sometimes what the Buddha has to offer is not easy to hear. You know, it just kind of goes, rubs us the wrong way or goes against our, our intuition or our preference. And so, Master Saito is suggesting, well, check to see, are you really willing to hear these teachings and to be taught? Not to believe, just because the Buddha says, or I say, not, not that, but to to hear what the Buddha says or what I say and to try it out for yourself. You know, the, the Dharma has this quality of ehi pasiko. Come and see for yourself. Check it out for yourself. So listen to the teachings. Check it out for yourself. And if you find that it's beneficial, even if you might be surprised that it is, then have the courage to live it. Live with it. Live that way. <coughs> When we're teachable, of course, we're willing to learn, and already the mind is open, pliable, flexible, willing to grow, willing to change, willing to admit mistakes, bad habits, in order to learn. And we might understand that, you know, our mistakes are the paving stones of wisdom on this path. Because when we make mistakes and we see that we suffer, or others suffer due to that, then it's pretty, it's pretty hard not to learn from making mistakes. So any mistake that you can gain wisdom from is valuable. Hard to call it a mistake at that point because it leads to some, understand, some increased understanding, some wisdom. And then, while we're loving solitude, to seek good friends. So, what this means is, you know, we have a lot of, we, we meet a lot of people in our lives. Some at work, some neighbors, some socially. Um, we, just, we just meet a lot of people. And it's important to consider uh, who they are in your life, or how they are in your life. And what they're, um, what, which of them calls forth the best within you. We meet a lot of people that, you know, quite willing to go into the ditch with us, you know, or to just kind of waste our time. And so you want to recognize those who call forth the best within you, because that's your spiritual community. Those that you care about how they think about you, that's your spiritual community. So who, whose counsel do you seek? And who, who, who is it that you care how they think of you? A good spiritual friend is someone who you trust, who offer advice. Hopefully, hopefully you'll be courageous enough to ask for it. But uh, sometimes we have to monitor just how, how to be a spiritual friend. Because when we see people, as we sometimes do, acting out in a way that's not beneficial to them, it's hard to know just how to uh, approach them, how to approach them, what to offer them. And sometimes, you know, we have to really monitor. Even if we think we know what's right, what's best or better, there might never be the right time to share it. So it's an important... hmm, Consideration. Now, Upandita was not like that. <laughs> Upandita was not afraid to lay it on, lay it out, and let you deal with it one way or another. And some people who have who had practiced with, uh, or had gone to practice with Saito Upandita, found him too strict, seemingly uncaring, pretty demand, very demanding, uh, very impersonal, uh, and, and just kind of severe almost. But, you know, I practiced with him for many years. And what I found 
was that he was so knowledgeable about the mind. He understood the nature of the mind, the activities of the mind. And he understood the suffering in my mind better than I did. And so he encouraged me to practice in such a way that was hard. It was really hard. It was very demanding. But it exposed the suffering in my mind, in my heart. And because it was, when it was exposed, then I could practice in such a way as to relieve myself of that suffering. But if I didn't, to the extent that when I didn't know about that suffering, I couldn't do anything about it. I didn't know that I was suffering. But because he encouraged me to practice in such a way that I saw the suffering, and it was not just the suffering caused by meditation. Mindfulness doesn't cause cause suffering, it exposes the suffering. It's already in the mind. And by being able to deal with the suffering and resolve it in some ways, or let go of beliefs and behaviors and misbehaviors, uh, was able to get some relief from suffering, I then could consider that Sayadaw Bandita's way of teaching was very compassionate. Because compassion is is an act to relieve someone's suffering. And even though what he was asking me to do, the kind of practice, was difficult and challenging and you know, had a kind of suffering to it, it actually ended up, resulted in less suffering. So I can only consider it as being supremely compassionate to be asked to practice in that way. But I have to admit, I don't have the courage to teach that way. Because... I like to be liked. He didn't. <laughs> Kamala uh, went to see him one time uh, when he was teaching somewhere, and she hadn't seen him in a while. So she, when she saw him coming down the stairs, she said to him, "Oh, Sidas, uh, I'm so happy to see you." And he goes, "Bum bum bum bum." He mumbles something in Burmese, which wasn't translated at the time. So then she had this interview with him and talked with him for a while. And then as she was leaving, the, the, the translator said, hey, do you want to know what Sayadaw said when you said you're so happy to see him? She said, yeah. He said, <clears throat> when you said, I'm so happy to see you, Sayadaw, he said, I'm not here to make you happy, I'm here to make you mindful. <laughs> but that, that's the kind of guy he was, you know. And even though I knew him for 30 years... Uh, when I would go see him, I go see him every year when I go to Burma. I go see him, and it was like he was seeing me for the first time, every time. Didn't assume anything. It was just, and that's a little, that's a little disarming. It's a little, you know. Initially, it was off-putting. Like, hey, don't you remember me? <laughs> you know, he didn't say no, but sometimes it seemed that way. And it was just that he was so real. In that moment, he was just, who are you? What are you here? Why are you here? And very demanding in that way of, you know, expecting you to be mindful, not relying on old assumptions of of anything. And uh, then Mahasthi Sayadaw says, these are the six qualities to, you know, these are the six qualities, the six factors that contribute to good dhammas. Now, good dhammas are not just pleasantness, but they are the qualities of mind that lead to or that uh, engender a sense of well-being. A feeling of contentment, a feeling of ease, a feeling of kindness within yourself, where you practice compassion, Wholesome states of mind, like generosity, living ethically, uh, living in harmony with others, being respectful. And then all the spiritual goodies that come. Clarity and insight, tranquility, equanimity, and eventually, peace. These are the good dhammas we can expect from this kind of practice. Well, you see, I have... Two more pages of notes, and we've run out of time. But anyway, I think you can uh, 
from hearing even this much commentary on the teachings of Mahasi Sayadaw, you can understand how he really encapsulated the teachings of the Buddha in a pretty crisp way. But it's what we need to do, it's what we need to hear. And so in this way, it's encouraging us to practice simply, but to practice sincerely, and will surely uh, gain the benefit of realizing the Dhamma. So let's sit for a moment and let the words enter our heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.